Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church, and I am always thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew 19. We're going to be back starting in verse 1 today, but we're going to go a little bit further than we did last week. We're in a series in which we're going through the entire book of Matthew. This is the fourth part of that series, but this is like sermon number 67. Uh, I don't know. I lost count. I'd have to do some math. But last week, we covered the issue of the basis for marriage is the way in which God created man and woman. And that there are two distinctive biological sexes that God designed, and it was good, and it is good. And this week, we're going to further that idea to talk about the reality of what God designed your marriage to be. If you are in here and you are married, I'm definitely talking to you. If you're not married, I'm definitely talking to you. If you're divorced, I'm talking to you. If you've remarried, I'm talking to you. If you've remarried, you know, a few times, I'm also talking to you. Uh, it becomes difficult when we want to view God's plan through our experience. When we want to understand the way in which God wants marriage to work, the way in which God wants sexuality to work, the way in which God wants our lives and our commitments and our loyalties to work, there's, there's this temptation for us to say, but I have to view it through the perspective of my experience because I'm a unique person living a unique story in a unique way in my unique world. And that is going to lead you to nothing but disaster. You must find something to root your design and definition of what life is meant to be like in something and someone greater than yourself. If there is no concrete definition for the journey by which life was meant to take, then we are all left to define it for ourselves. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but that's going to lead us nowhere but to chaos. And so today, you may have, you know, last week left here and been like, ah, we've got the best definitions. Well, I hope you feel the same way about today, uh, because Jesus is going to meddle in your life a little bit if you're married, if you're following his design for the genders, if you're following his design for everything, you must then say, yes, Lord, you have designed and defined marriage in a specific way. And regardless of my experience, regardless of what I've endured, regardless of what I have been through or what I want to put someone else through, your designs are good. And I will seek to submit to them, even if it requires repentance, even if it requires restoration, even if it requires me to realize that I have been living in sin and there are things that I need to get right because I want to follow Jesus into his righteous design. And so, if you think that I am unaware of the fact that I have people from all type of marriage backgrounds in here, man, you're the one that has no idea. We've got people from all over the place, people that have been married for over 50 years, people whose marriages probably lasted about six months. And they're all gathered in this room, and here's what I want to tell you all. God's design is the same for every one of you, and it's a good design. Let's go back to see the words of Jesus, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, 
Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one? Now I want to stop you right there. In the Garden of Eden, the way in which Satan used his craftiness was that he altered the Word of God in a very slight and minor way. And that's exactly what the Pharisees have done. There is nowhere in the Old Testament where Moses commanded anyone to be divorced. And so the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up, who wrote Deuteronomy, by altering Deuteronomy. It's not going to work. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, or in the Steve International version, because you're a bunch of dirty sinners. All right, that's what he's saying there. Moses allowed, very different, command and allowed, two different words, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case, a man is such a case of a... I love the way the disciples put this. It's like a 15-year-old. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only for those to whom it is given. For there are, and I love the way Jesus goes back at them, for there are eunuchs. Now, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in my sermon on this, but eunuchs, well, they were unable to perform, surgically speaking, because eunuchs had everything cut off to serve royalty so that there would be no temptation in their lives because they couldn't do anything if they had nothing. That's the PG-13 version. Let the hearer understand. <laughs> oh, boy. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Jesus takes what man complicates and makes it very simple. Jesus does not make it easy, but he makes it very simple. To complicate things is to seek to make things easier on yourself, and Jesus rarely does that in the Scriptures anywhere. But rather, Jesus will go through all the complications that we put in something, and he will make it extremely simple for us, and so simple that we're looking at it and we're saying, no, it can't be that clear cut because that would be too difficult for me. I need a little more complication for me to get around the rule. To which Jesus says there isn't one. You're either in or you're out. Number one, God designed marriage as a lifetime commitment. God designed marriage as a lifetime commitment. No qualifications. I need you to understand that there is no qualification under the sun for that statement. Jesus continually looks back and he says, from the beginning. In other words, what was said in the book of Genesis 
is God's ideal for every single person on this earth. Therefore, there is no marriage on earth that God has an intention of ending in divorce. You need to submit to that reality. Even if you've been divorced, even if you've been remarried, even if you've been divorced three times, four times, five times, after the fifth one, slow down. It's like you're trying to get all your holes punched on a subway card. All right? There is no free one on the seventh try. Okay? Doesn't get easier just because you get more holes punched. All right? No matter where you are in life, you must look at the words of Jesus and you must take joy in the fact that what man has broken, God designed to be whole. God designed a specific purpose and a specific reason. God designed things to function and work in a specific way to image His glory. Genesis 1.27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. He's telling us that our purpose in this life is to image forth His very image to this world. There's so much that we could say about a lifelong commitment in marriage, but I want to break it up into three Aspects. First, marriage exists first and foremost as a reflection of God's image in man. Marriage exists as a reflection of God's image in man. If you enter into marriage, you need to understand that the purpose of your marriage is to show the image of God to the community around you through your marriage. In Genesis 1, we looked at it, it says, you bear the image of God, but then in Genesis 2, after Adam had been working in the garden, God looks to him and says, it is not good for man to be alone. The first time God looks to a part of his creation and says, it is not good. You cannot fulfill what I need you to fulfill by yourself in isolation, working in the garden. Genesis 2, 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Men can sleep through almost anything. <laughs> Fascinating. My wife said the best sleep I've ever had was when our children were in diapers. I'm just a deep sleeper, guys. What can I tell you? I don't know. I just didn't want to wake you up. Oh, honey, feel free to wake me up. Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man. Because she was taken out of man. Verse 24. Therefore, or because of the way that God created woman... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, one thing that I want you to see that's not in my notes, and this will really help mother-in-laws. I really believe that. This is going to be funny. But it's also true. You are not gaining another child. It's the most destructive thing that I have seen in-laws try to forecast 
into the lives of their children when they're about to get married. They'll say, my family's getting bigger. No, it's not. Your family got smaller. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall what? Leave. Also, don't live in your parents' basement. It's unbiblical. Leave. Get out. My kids come to me and they want to get married. I'm going to tell them, where are you going to live? If they don't have a plan, you're not getting married. Leave his father and his mother and do what? Hold fast to his wife. God's making a new family. God's making a new family. Respect that new family. Respect the boundaries. Respect that God has multiplied. God does not multiply so that you can micromanage. God does not multiply so that you can create a clone of yourself, or at least try to. It's okay if she makes her pot roast a little bit different. That's the new family's pot roast. It's okay if her holiday de uh, decorations don't look the same as yours. It's a new house, new decorations, new family boundaries. Verse 25, though. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. God created Eve out of Adam so that they could share in each other's lives forever. For a lifetime, they become one flesh. Adam is told to commit with complete faithfulness. And it is only in light of a covenant for a lifetime that you can be naked and unashamed. When you plan to be temporary, when you plan to be transient, you can expect to have shame in your life. God has designed it to be a lifetime commitment that there should be an innocence in each other's embrace because it will never belong to anyone else, ever. This is God's original design. But the second one, it's for God's image first. Then secondly, marriage is a sign of God's covenant faithfulness. Your faithfulness in your marriage is not simply to show how good you are at commitment. It is to be a revelation of how wonderful God is at commitment. That's why if they will not be 100% faithful to you, do not marry them. Do not marry them. Men, do not think that your marriage exists less than for all of you. If you're only going to give a portion of your commitment to your wife, don't marry her. Do the right thing. Let her go. Let her find someone else. Women, if you're not going to give all of your life to your husband, do not marry him. Let him go. Let him find someone else. If you're going to live a life in which hobbies are more important than your marriage, Jesus says become a eunuch. Because you are to example and show God's covenant faithfulness to the world around you. There is no more important relationship or anything else in your life that gets this level of commitment or this level of faithfulness. There's nothing else. The most important commitment in my life is my wife. Point blank. There's nothing else that I am called to invest this level of commitment, this level of faithfulness in my life. My life is not defined by pastoral ministry, 
by how good I am at a sport, by how good I am at any work, at any hobby, at anything, my life will ultimately be defined by my faithfulness to my wife. And for you to have that type of faithfulness, that is how you must view your commitment to faithfulness. If you have been less than 100% committed to your wife, repent immediately. Return to the wife of your youth. You say, well, she's not the same woman I married. (laughs) You think you're the same man she married? (laughs) Marriage is so much more than physical. If you don't get past the first 10 years, you won't even get to the good stuff. You must realize that marriage is one man, one woman, one lifetime, not because God just wanted to throw an arbitrary commitment our way, but because God wanted us to show Him and His faithfulness to the world. If I am not faithful to my wife, if I am not committed to my wife, I am telling the world something that I believe about God, that I don't think He's faithful, that I don't think He's righteous, that I don't think He's committed Then the third thing, marriage reflects God's purpose in the gospel. His image, his commitment, his purpose. Your marriage exists to show the truth of the gospel to the world around you. Ephesians chapter 5 reveals to us, a man shall leave. He quotes Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and his mother. There's a big emphasis on leaving. Just can't overstate, leave. Right? Well, but mommy said, doesn't matter what your mother said anymore, you're married. I'm helping somebody. <laughs> Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Know what he says in verse 32? This mystery is profound. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is about Jesus Christ. The husband is to reflect the love that Jesus has for his church to his wife. And the wife is to reflect the love that the church has for Jesus to her husband. This is a profound mystery that was a prophecy for centuries fully realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ and into what we are as the church of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad Jesus is faithful to you? Aren't you glad Jesus will never walk away? Aren't you glad Jesus will never leave you or forsake you? Aren't you glad Jesus will never harm you? Aren't you glad Jesus will be there on your worst day? Aren't you glad Jesus will walk with you through the biggest pain that you have in your life? Aren't you glad Jesus will endure with you even when you are grumpy and full of sin? Now look at your marriage. Is that what you're exampling to the world? We are to reflect the gospel. If you claim to be a Christian, this is what your marriage is. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what you are called to do. So if you don't want to commit to this, you have two options. First, don't enter into marriage. Secondly, stop saying you're a Christian. Those are your two options. No, I don't want to share my password with anyone. Which one of you asked? (laughs) Number two this morning. 
Divorce is rooted in sin. Number two, divorce is rooted in sin. Now, sometimes I will have people come up to me after I preach, and I'll say, make a statement like that, and they'll say, what about the divorced people in there? I will tell you, the first people that will tell you divorce is rooted in sin are the people that have been through a divorce. <laughs> they don't walk away and say, well, wasn't that fun? <laughs> Let's do that again. No, they walk away, and they will say that was painful. It was difficult. I'm filled with shame. I'm filled with hurt. They will tell you divorce is rooted in sin. Understand, divorce is not God's ideal. I want you to know that I realize that there are single, married, divorced, divorced multiple times, remarried people in here. And there's always that temptation that I talked about earlier to where you want to define God's ideal according to your experience and according to your life. But we are not free to do that. We must submit to God's revelation and treat any issue as God treats it, no matter where you're coming from. Because an aspect of following Jesus is believing. His word is good. His gospel is true for me. Because of that, it should come as no surprise for me to say that divorce is not God's ideal. Every divorce is painful and every divorce, regardless of the circumstances, is hurtful. The Pharisees, what they had done for that culture is they had taken Old Testament law and turned it into a license to treat marriage and divorce very flippantly. They would even require divorce under some circumstances, and that is why they said the way they said Moses commanded divorce. They used God's law in unfaithful ways to allow a man to choose to divorce his wife for whatever reason he could find. This was not God's intention. The first people that created an irreconcilable difficulties clause were the Pharisees. It's not just us. They were misusing God's design for their advantage. Jesus gives us God's design in Matthew 19.6. Look at what Jesus says. This is what God has joined together. What? Let no man separate. No man separate. That's his ideal. That is his intention. That is what he wants it to be. That's the end of the story. It is sin that enters in to complicate what God has made simple. Marriage is difficult because of sin, but it is not complicated. It should come as no surprise to you that marriage is difficult. If you've been married for six months, you know that marriage is difficult. By the time you get back from your honeymoon, you are questioning your choice. <laughs> because marriage is difficult. But it's the struggle that sin brings into our lives that makes it that way. And the Pharisees seized on that difficulty and turned what God had designed as good and made it more convenient so that they could escape any difficulty that they wanted. God, though, is gracious to instruct us how to deal with sinful realities. The Pharisees were quoting from Deuteronomy 24. But what they didn't understand and what they refused to submit to is that God did not give Deuteronomy 24 as a way for people to get out of marriage. Rather, God wrote Deuteronomy 24 to help people deal with the sinful reality of people getting out of their marriages. Here's what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that is the Hebrew equivalent of sexual immorality. It's the Hebrew equivalent of porneia, 
indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. He had to qualify. It's almost like uh, um, paragraph B, subsection D. Moses had to do that because people, people are foolish. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man's di man dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land excuse me, upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, what's going on here? God is gracious in that He looked at the sinful dissolution of marriage in Israel and sought to give a law in order to bring order into chaos of what was brewing. Men were abdicating their responsibility to lead, then seeking to divorce their wives. Then the wife would go and she would enter into another marriage. And then that marriage would end. And so many times what the wife would do is she would then return to the first husband and try to enter back into marriage with him. And this was an ongoing cycle that was beginning to happen in the nation of Israel. And what Moses looks at them through the Word of God and he says is, you are creating a culture of adultery. And so God looks and He says, you've entered into sin do not continue to compound your sin over and over and over and over. If you leave because of indecency and you remarry, that covenant is gone. It is broken. Do not create a cycle of adultery in my people, is what God is saying. And then the Pharisees looked at it and they said, how can we use this to our advantage? Well, Let's first define indecency however we want. She a bad cook? Indecent! Get out! And so they were creating divorces that we call no-fault divorces. But in their culture, they would say, well, the man found fault. And so she must leave. God enters in and addresses the specific issue of declaring what is not allowable, but man always seeks to find a way for sin. Man always seeks to find it. This is descriptive rather than prescriptive. But it serves as a wisdom for men to realize they are not called by God to abdicate their responsibility. This is not a license for divorce. This is first... A statement of, do not divorce your wife hastily, but it is also a statement about the rights of the wife, because they were seeking to create a culture in which the man could abandon his marriage, and she was left clamoring to find a husband. And God looks in Deuteronomy and He says, do not abuse these women by writing them all certificate of divorces without indecency, sexual immorality in their lives. Friends, I will tell you, this is a description that serves to give wisdom to husbands not to divorce too quickly. As once that spouse is remarried, you can't have them again. You've broken that covenant. You've sinned against God. You cannot have that restored in your life. This hermeneutic from Deuteronomy was meant to prevent divorce and give order. It's not a license for divorce. 
This posed a huge problem for society. Now, understand, this allowance for divorce is not a command for divorce. Jesus reiterates that the only allowance for divorce, even in these cases, was sexual immorality. That term we talked about last week, porneia. This does not have to be adultery, but it comes just short of it and describes some form of sexual deviancy on the part of the spouse. In this case, the covenant can be treated as broken, but it does not have to be because just as with God, forgiveness is still an option. Now, there are two other biblical allowances uh, for ending a covenant of marriage. We don't have time to fully go into both of them, but the first one is death. Once a spouse dies, the marriage is over. The second one is the issue of total abandonment by one spouse as spelled out in 1 Corinthians. But that is a whole other sermon. (laughs) So we can't spend all of our time on that. But I will tell you, under the issue of total abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute, when you abandon your spouse, it specifically says that you are an unbeliever. When you walk away from your marriage and you abandon your spouse, you're making a statement about your faith. I know you don't want to believe that. I know you want to believe that it doesn't say anything about your relationship with Christ. But the fruit of your marriage says everything about your relationship with Christ. Do not have sexual immorality in your life if you're married, or if you're single, or if you're divorced, or if you're remarried. It breaks God's covenants and therefore invites God's wrath because you are showing fruit of unbelief in your life. Number three this morning, and this may be the most important, We must take marriage as seriously as God does. We must take marriage as seriously as God does. Younger people who are married, you are going to enter into hard days in your marriage. Hang on. Walk through them. Keep going. Keep enduring. Do not walk away. You don't want to be one of those people at Uptown Alley on Saturday nights. I'm just saying. And some of y'all are laughing because you, you've been. You know what goes on up there. Sad. People my age with my gut trying to pick up women. It is, whoo, it ain't a Disney fairy tale. It's a Halloween nightmare. <laughs> All right. And some, somebody in here is, was there last night. And here's the deal. I'm not sorry. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help with everything I got. Marriage and divorce should never be treated lightly. Marriage and divorce should be treated with the same kind of commitment and level of gravitas and level of seriousness that God treats it with. Marriage does not exist, and I cannot overstate this. Marriage does not exist for your personal fulfillment. Marriage does not exist for your happiness. Marriage does not exist for romance. Marriage does not exist for your sexual pleasure. Those are all great byproducts of marriage. 
But if those are in any way your main goal, you will be disappointed. Marriage exists for the glory of God. Marriage exists to show the holiness of God. And marriage exists to proclaim the righteousness of God to a wicked culture. Our faithfulness in our marriages should serve as a revelation to an unbelieving world that can't be faithful to anything. This is about a covenant with God. Let me be blunt. The fact that an irreconcilable differences clause exists should not change anything for the follower of Jesus Christ. It should never be an option for any of you. I want you to understand that the day you are in that lawyer's office or the day that you've got those papers on your kitchen table and you are marking irreconcilable differences, I want you to hear my voice telling you you are entering into a life of sin. I want you to know that. I want you to realize that. And I know some of you have already marked that. And there is grace for you that we will talk about in a moment. But that should not be an option for the follower of Jesus Christ. This is about a covenant with God. Friend, if you are in this room and you are divorced or you are in the middle of a divorce, I also want you to understand, do not enter into a new relationship. Don't do it. Until you have dealt with whatever sin has caused a covenant with God to be broken, you are simply going to keep carrying that same baggage that ended one relationship into every other relationship And all that you are doing, jumping from marriage to marriage to marriage, is showing the world that you don't get what this is about. Because you're showing the world, I didn't get personal fulfillment with that one. Maybe I'll get it with that one. You'll never get it from any of them. Because you're designed to get it from God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're going through a divorce or you're divorced and a new marriage hasn't been entered into, I want to advise you to go back to your spouse and work it out, if you can. At minimum, stay single until it is clear that that spouse is not going to be able to restore the relationship. Now, some of you don't try to use that as your advantage because then you're the abandoner. I have known people in marriages... I decided one day that I'm unhappy in this marriage, so here's what I'm going to do. I know divorce is is not God's ideal. So I'm going to make my spouse as miserable as I possibly can so that they will walk away. And then I can blame them. Friend, do you think God can't see your heart? You think God doesn't realize what your motivation is there? You can fool me all day. You cannot fool God with your sinful motivations. If that's you, then you are the one that is abandoning the marriage, even within the marriage that still exists. 1 Corinthians 7.15 notes that the one who abandons should understand that he or she is revealing that he or she is an unbeliever. Now what did Paul says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. No, he doesn't just say partner. What does he say? Unbelieving. 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 Paul qualifies it on purpose. Friend, don't walk away from your spouse. 
Because when you do that outside of the allowances that Jesus Christ has given us in this text, then you are very much walking away from Jesus. Fighting for marriage is a fight for holiness. Malachi 2, 13-16 gives a bleak picture of Israel's relationship with God. And God specifically talks about the way that they're dealing with their marriages. Malachi 2.13, the prophet writes from the voice of God, and the second thing you do, Israel, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not accept it? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did He not make them one? With a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. God takes marriage and divorce seriously. And he says, you can come in his presence. You can get emotional. You can raise your hands. You can cry tears. You can come down to his altar and you can beg and plead and say, God, give me your presence. And God will say, where's your spouse? Because you can have all the worshipful activity you want to in here, but God says the truth of who you are is what's going on in your life out there. Where's your marriage? Where's your spouse? God takes marriage seriously, therefore we ought to take it as seriously as God does. Your marriage is a real-life picture of how you view God's holiness. Do not trample on the holiness of God and then outwardly pretend to value the holiness of God. Friend, if you treasure and want to seek God's holiness, it will be lived out in your every day. Jesus states in Matthew 19, 11, that not everyone can receive this saying. He looks at his disciples, like a couple 15-year-olds. Oh man, nobody should ever get married then. You got to stay with her forever? What if she gets ugly? <laughs> Jesus looks back and he says, it's not complicated, but it is difficult. And not everyone can receive this saying. But just because you can't receive this saying doesn't mean you have a license for sexual immorality. Doesn't mean you have a license for divorce. Doesn't mean you have a license for adultery. Doesn't mean you have a license for anything other than God's ideal. And God says, if you're not going to take it seriously, either go, get a knife, or just mentally realize God has not designed you to be in marriage if you're not going to view it the way God has designed it. Faithfulness to God is always His priority. Build a marriage, friends. Build a marriage that shows the glory of God in your care for your spouse. Good times, bad times, every in-between time. I cannot tell you what a wonderful God-glorifying reality that repentance looks like in marriage. To make a marriage work, you've got to repent a lot. Got to say, I'm sorry, a lot. Got to say, I forgive you, a lot. 
Now, friend, are you divorced? Are you remarried? Are you currently in a marriage that is on the rocks? You need to find a way forward. Here's, here's a few things. It may require repentance. And for some of you, you may need to go back. Some of you are in a place where you're divorced. It wasn't working. You're both still single. You haven't entered into a, a new marriage. Neither one of you committed sexual immorality. Go back. That is not something that many pastors will tell you because they don't want to tell you the truth. But the Bible gives hope. Go back. Work it out to the glory of God. Now, are you remarried? It may need to be taken to Jesus for His grace, and you may need to move forward. But here's the complication. You are going to be tempted to bring the same level of commitment into your second and third and fourth marriage that you brought into your first marriage. You still need to repent. You still need to repent. You need to put the sin of the past under the cross of Jesus Christ, and you need to move forward with this new spouse seeking to reflect the glory of God. The Scripture is clear. Build a marriage that shows God's glory. Now, if you've been abandoned, if your spouse committed adultery, or if you committed adultery, and that marriage is over, it's, not, it's gone. It's not going to work. If you're just in that legal period of separation, please, friends, and, and this, is, this is just Steve Proverbs. Don't let me see on Facebook that you're on a date. Don't enter hastily into a new relationship. I will tell you, you are not ready. The ink is not dry. <laughs> you need time to heal. You need time to find your identity in Christ because you're trying to fill the void in another person. It's not going to work. A few application points. God's design for marriage is good. Followers of Jesus submit to that reality. Don't devalue marriage even if you've had a marriage from hell. Don't devalue it to others. Because sin did that, God didn't. Secondly, invest in your marriage like your life depends on it, because I believe mine does. She'll kill me. <laughs> invest in your marriage like it is all of your life, because God puts it that way. Love your wife. Love your husband. Love the period of life that you are in regardless of where you are. Every day is not going to be easy. Some days are going to be really tough, and that's why you need one another to point one another to Jesus Christ. Thirdly, don't move hastily towards divorce. Fight divorce with everything in your being. There's no command in the Scripture that you have to get divorced for any other reason. There are allowances for divorce, but it's not a command. Seek to value marriage. Fourthly, do not pursue remarriage quickly. Don't pursue it quickly. I mean, you need to be so slow, people think you're standing still. Don't pursue it too quickly. Some of you did pursue it too quickly. And you're having problems in your new marriage. So what do you do? You say, well, maybe I need to revert again and get another divorce. No, you don't. You are where you are. 
And where you are is what God wants you to deal with. And when you deal with where you are, you get better or you get bitter. And by getting better, I mean change, repent, invest in your marriage like your life depends on it. That's always the answer. Fifthly, trust God's design and process. Trust God's design and process. Well, I don't love him anymore. Well, I don't love her anymore. Try. Love is not a feeling. Some of you need to hear that. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. It's a choice. My wife, by God's grace, wakes up every morning and chooses to love me. It might be hard some days. It's easy to love her. It's easy. She makes it easy for me. I don't know that I do the same. <laughs> but it's a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice. Make godly choices in your marriage. I'm not going to tell you it's going to be, you know, all rainbows and unicorns every day. It's not. But by God's grace, you will grow to love Jesus Christ together so much. And I'll be honest, your goal should be, I can't imagine life without you. I can't imagine life without my wife. She better not imagine life without me. Because I ain't going nowhere. She makes good pancakes. So good. So good. But friends, God values your marriage. God loves your marriage. God wants you to invest in your marriage because it's a reflection of your relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, every Sunday we reflect in communion. There's a packet somewhere around your seat. The bread at the top of that packet represents the broken body of Christ. The cup represents His shed blood. When you eat and when you drink, you proclaim to everyone in this room... <laughs> You are a follower of Jesus Christ. Do not make such a proclamation lightly. Friend, if you're in here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in here this morning and you're saying, my faith is a sham. If you're in here this morning and you're saying, my marriage is a reflection of my faith and I don't know that I have any, I want you to know that today could be the day of salvation for you. Today could literally be the day that your marriage turns around. Repentance is a decision that starts up here. God gave you the ability to make decisions for a reason. It starts right here. And then it flows out of the life that you live. And so I want you to consider deciding today, I will follow Jesus Christ. He died to pay the penalty for my sin. He rose from the dead to give me a new life under the power of His Holy Spirit. I will follow Him. And for some of you, that decision is also going to carry with it. And I will treasure my marriage. I will rebuild what sin is destroying or has destroyed. I will commit like Jesus is committing to me. And we will reflect the glory of God from this day forward. You can decide that today and then live it out there. Friend, if you are a follower of Jesus, eat, drink, proclaim your faith. 